0: where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me, They began to be sorrowful and said to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you. Who are we that the Lord of the universe would be mindful of us and even speak to us in these scriptures? But you're the God of compassion and grace, And you speak to us lovingly, and we praise you above all things. We're listening, Lord. Help us continue to listen with open and obedient hearts, that we may submit to your will, which is only and always good. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus the Savior. Amen. Recently, I've been enjoying the BBC show Merlin, which is a British fantasy drama that's very loosely based off of the legends of King Arthur. The show takes place before Arthur is king. He's young prince of Camelot, and uh, the warlock Merlin is his best friend and servant boy. Well, in the show, King Uther Pendragon has outlawed magic and works incessantly to purge the whole kingdom from magic users and uh, often resorting to violence. Well, there's this one character, and I'm not gonna spoil who it is. I know that the show is 15 years old, but I only just started watching it, so maybe someone else will wanna watch it too. But there's this one character who discovers that she has magic. She has that ability. And as time goes on, she begins to lose trust in the king. She comes to actually despise the king for his prejudice against magic users because she knows that he would never accept her if he knew that she had the secret ability. And so she begins to plot against the king. She looks for opportunities to betray him and bring him down once and for all. And by season three, she has transformed completely into the show's primary bad guy, although she's still a sympathetic character. Well, in our world, betrayal has become a simple fact of life. Many of us know too well the pain of being betrayed by someone we love. Our friends have betrayed us, even our spouses, our families, our churches. Many of us also probably know the pain and the real guilt of having betrayed somebody else. Well, betrayal enters our hearts when someone else stands between us and what we want, Or what we think we need. But betrayal doesn't come from nowhere. Often it starts out as one of two things. Jealousy or mistrust. And in fact, the first two big sins of the Bible were these kinds of betrayals. Cain was jealous of Abel and he betrayed his brother and killed him out in the field. Adam and Eve were convinced by the serpent that they couldn't trust God anymore. And they betrayed him betrayed his covenant, and ate the forbidden fruit. In our passages this morning, Judas has already determined to betray Jesus to the chief priests. There's something that he wants, and Jesus is standing in his way. Jesus isn't turning out to be the Messiah that he expected, and so he doesn't trust him anymore. The question that this passage is asking of you this morning is, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust him? Do you trust that the future that he's preparing will be just as he told you? And are you therefore willing to remain loyal to him, to stick it out with Jesus? Do you trust that even right now, even in all the pain and the mystery of life, he's doing just as he promised he would do? In other words, do you trust that he is who he says he is? When we don't trust Jesus, we aren't going to be loyal to him. In fact, every time we sin, we betray our allegiance to Christ, our King. And if we aren't loyal to him, we'll find someone else or something else to be loyal to. There are plenty of idols out there and in your own heart that would love to have your loyalty. Because whoever you're loyal to, you're going to serve them. You're going to give your whole self to them. But nothing in this world except Jesus... Is worthy or able to bear the weight of your complete trust and loyalty. As Mark begins to tell the story of Passover, he focuses on the fact that even though Jesus is currently being betrayed, even though the sequence of events that will lead to his death have already begun, he is in complete control of the situation. He knows what's going to happen because he knows who he is. He's the Messiah of Israel the son of man who goes as it's written of him to suffer and die for the sins of the world. No one's taking his life. He's laying it down. And he's inviting his disciples and he's inviting you to trust that he is in control. So St. Andrews, the point of this passage that I want to emphasize this morning is that Jesus alone is trustworthy. So remain loyal to him. Jesus alone is trustworthy. So remain loyal to him. And we'll see Jesus' trustworthiness throughout the whole narrative this morning, first as he prepares the meal, and second as he eats the meal. We kind of have a rare one-point sermon this morning. So first, how does Jesus show us he's trustworthy as he prepares to eat the Passover? Well, we see that Jesus has a plan and is in control of the situation. And I'll show you what I mean. Think about what's actually going on in these first few verses. In fact, think back to verse 2 of this chapter, you find out that the chief priests are plotting to arrest Jesus by stealth. They could be hiding around any corner, and the reader is just waiting in suspense for Jesus to be caught by surprise. And then back in Bethany, we're shocked to find out that Judas just switched teams. None of the disciples have any idea. And if you're a first-time reader of the gospel, maybe you think that Jesus has no idea either. The odds just aren't looking good. It's really tense now. The chief priests could ambush him at any moment. And so now we're on the way back into Jerusalem, potentially right into a trap set by the chief priests. And the disciples ask him where they're going to eat the Passover. Now you can bet that Judas is all ears. He's got his notepad, his pen. He's ready to go. He's ready to hear what Jesus says next. But what Jesus actually says is... Super cryptic. He doesn't say, "Oh, yeah, it's at 316 Obadiah Street across from the Matza Plaza." because it would have been over, right? Judas would have just passed it along to the chief priests, and they would have been waiting for him at his arrival. But Jesus knows that they're trying to track him, and he's going to let them find him eventually, but it's going to be on his terms. He intends to celebrate the Passover with his disciples before he gets arrested. He has a plan. He's in control. Now, it was necessary in those days to make arrangements for the Passover meal beforehand. Just like today, you aren't going to call your extended family members the morning of Thanksgiving and say, hey, whose house are we doing this at today? From what Mark tells us, it looks like Jesus made prior arrangements with an acquaintance in the city. Now, this was someone who had recognize the disciples... Who would know who the teacher is? He had a plan to eat the Passover without giving his betrayer an opportunity to turn him in before the meal. Now, I don't explain it like this to make it seem like there is nothing supernatural about this encounter. That's not the point. The point is that Mark wants his readers to know that Jesus is in command of the situation. Because the disciples thus far in the story don't really have a reason to doubt Jesus, but the reader actually might. Because the reader knows about what Judas is up to. The events that will lead to his death have already begun. But Mark is saying Jesus isn't caught by surprise. He knows who he is. He knows where he's going. So trust him and stick it out with him. Back in chapter 11, only a few days prior, Mark wrote about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And in that event, we saw Jesus revealed as the new Davidic king of Israel, right? Hosanna in the highest, who comes in the name of the Lord. Mark wants his readers to understand today's story in light of the triumphal entry. And here's what I mean. In both stories, before they enter the city, Jerusalem, Jesus sends two of his disciples in front of him to prepare for his arrival. In the first story, it's to find a seemingly random colt that's tied up. And in the second, it's to meet a seemingly random guy carrying a jar of water. It's as if Mark is saying, you know, pay attention to what's happening here because this is another triumphal entry story. It might not seem like it yet. In fact, it seems like exactly the opposite. Jesus enters Jerusalem on his way to die. But this death isn't his defeat. It will also be triumphant. And what Jesus began in the first triumphal entry, he's finishing now in what will turn out to be The last time that he enters Jerusalem. So, despite appearances, Jesus was in control. There's this road near the house that I grew up in um, that goes down this really steep hill. And in high school, whenever I was driving, um, you know, I'd be driving with my friends on my way to my house, and I had this one friend. He would always get freaked out when we'd kind of get to the crest of the hill and start going down especially in the dark or the fog, because once you get to that crest of the hill, you can only see like a little bit of the road before you know, the curve makes it look like it's just a flat horizon. So it kind of looks like you're really about to drive off of a cliff. And no matter how many times I'd been over this hill with him, he'd always scream like a little child. And I of course got a ton of amusement out of his fear because it really does seem like you're about to drive off of a cliff. But I knew that the road kept going and that it would always take us home safe. Well, the road that Jesus was following also looked like it could end in tragedy. But despite appearances, he knew that he was on the path to victory over sin and death. He had everything in his control. And the disciples set out and went into the city, and they found it just as he had told them, and he prepared they prepared the Passover. So let's move on to the upper room where Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his friends. How is Jesus going to show us his trustworthiness in this passage? Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. One of you will betray me. Now we can't underestimate the shock that this probably caused the disciples, because Jesus predicted at least three times that he was going to be turned into the chief priests, and even if the disciples failed to come to terms with this, they definitely didn't expect that the person who would turn him in would be from among their inner circle of brothers. It says they began to be sorrowful and say to him, "One after another, "Is it I? Is it I?" And this is kind of a weird question, if you ask me because if I was there, I imagine the question I'd be asking is, well, who is it, Jesus? Can't you tell us? But their question reveals something about the disciples' hearts, and it reveals something about our hearts too. The disciples had doubts. They know that they have it in them to be the one that Jesus is talking about, to betray Jesus, and it makes them sorrowful Yeah, Peter will later say, even though they all fall away, I will not. But he will fall away. And the fact that he also asked this question, is it I? means that deep down, he probably knew it too. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that you have it in you to betray Jesus too. The question is, of course, what do you do when you're tempted to doubt your loyalty? What do you do when you know you've betrayed Jesus? Even when you've willingly and intentionally betrayed Jesus. Even when you've massively and premeditatively betrayed Jesus. Well, the answer is you go to him. You can go to him. Jesus is a compassionate and trustworthy savior. Go to him with your doubt Go to him with your guilt, with your disloyalty. He invites you. Just like he does with Peter and the other disciples, he'll give you the opportunity to reaffirm your loyalty to him. And he will always forgive you. You can trust that even when you aren't loyal to him, he'll always be loyal to you. Not because you're trustworthy, because you know you aren't, but because he is faithful to his word. And his word says that he'll never leave or forsake the ones that he loves. But there's one disciple Jesus knows is about to betray him. And we're going to read about what happens when you don't go to Jesus. It's one of the most heart-wrenching statements in the Bible. Um, It's even more heart-wrenching because it comes from Jesus' own mouth. In verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now this is a sensitive passage, and I think we can easily misunderstand what it's actually saying about Judas and about Jesus. Jesus. So I have three things that I want to remind you of in this passage. First, is that Jesus loved Judas. God knew from eternity past that Judas would betray Jesus. Judas was in the mind and heart of God when the psalmist wrote in Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now I want to rewind to chapter three of Mark. What was it like when God and Jesus first met Jesus? When he first laid eyes on the one whom he knew from the beginning of time would betray him. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Judas was one whom Jesus desired. God had a calling for him, but it was Judas who rejected this calling and betrayed the only one who ever loved him with an eternal and cosmic and unending love. God didn't call Judas to be a betrayer, of course, Judas rejected God's calling in order to betray Jesus. And this is the second thing that Judas's betrayal was entirely his choice. And I think this is important because many of us might be tempted to think that what we learn from this passage is that God works salvation at the expense of Judas. We fear that maybe now God is working good things too, but what if it's at our expense? And of course, this is a lie, because no human being is expendable to God, not even Judas. And we know that Jesus had a deep, deep love for Judas. You know, Scripture says he was a close friend whom Jesus trusted. But our salvation wasn't at the expense of Judas. This is a mystery, but it's true. It was a tragedy for Judas that he betrayed the Son of Man so much so that it would have been better for him if he had just died in his mother's womb. It's not, however, a tragedy that Jesus was betrayed and delivered over to death. Because that's what he knew he came to do, to deliver us from death. And this is the great mystery, that the Son of Man goes as it's written of him, and he goes willingly. And yet Judas is responsible for his own sinful choice that accomplishes it. And this is my point. You must understand that God didn't sacrifice Judas for you. God sacrificed himself for you. That is the character of God. And it's therefore the character of Jesus. Which brings us to the third thing, is that Jesus will always forgive your sins. Because some of you hear this verse, and you might think that Jesus is saying, Judas, I could never forgive you for what you're about to do. And that's scary because we know that we have it in us to betray Jesus too. But that is not at all what Jesus means. Because that would utterly betray his teachings and his character. The other 11 disciples betrayed Jesus in their own way. And Jesus compassionately forgave and even recommissioned every one of them our confession says that there's no sin big enough that God won't forgive us if we repent. And in this verse, when Jesus says, woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed, he's pleading with Judas to do just that, to repent. And the Old Testament prophets, every time they would proclaim woes on God's people, it was always an invitation to repent, to be saved from God's judgment and turned back to the Lord. But Judas never turned back to his Lord. He chose despair and the terrible judgment of God instead of going to the one he betrayed with contrition. Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah that Judas expected or wanted. He wasn't the savior that he'd created in his own image and that led him to betray him. That led him to despair when he saw that his betrayal led to Jesus' condemnation and murder. But Jesus was a better Savior than Judas could have even imagined. He was exactly the kind of Savior that he said he would be. And in this passage, he shows us that he's a trustworthy Savior. How does Jesus invite his disciples in this passage to trust him and to remain loyal to him? He says this, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. The son of man goes as it's written of him. What does this mean? It means Jesus is in control. Yes, he's going to suffer and die, but that's what he came to do. It was God's plan from the beginning. God gave his word that the seed of the woman would be bruised in order to destroy the devil and his works. God gave his word that the suffering of his righteous servant would bring healing and righteousness to his people and to all nations. The Son of Man goes exactly as it is written of him. So trust him. Trust his word. Whatever the Bible says will happen is going to happen because it did happen already. And you can believe that. In fact, Jesus is giving you permission to hope in what seems impossible. The crucified Messiah rising from the dead? That seemed impossible. The power of the Holy Spirit? The uncreated, immeasurable, eternal God Almighty falling on every believer and dwelling them. That seemed impossible. The good news preached by twelve men and spreading to the ends of the earth, that seemed impossible. There are promises of God that He is being faithful to in your life, even right now. Your life right now might seem too confusing to understand too painful to bear, too bleak to hope for anything better, it seems impossible. But God is trustworthy, and he's faithful to his word. Even if your most intimate person betrays you, even if it seems like everyone in your life is betraying you, you can go to the one who you know will never leave you or forsake you. You can go to the one whose word is always true. You can go to one whose love for you is wider and longer and higher and deeper than you can even comprehend. In him, you have a past, a present, and a future. He has a plan. He's in control. He goes as it's written of him. Stick it out with him. May we be a church that's committed to our loyalty to Jesus and reaffirm it over and over as he comes to us in our failures. And may we always put our trust in our faithful Savior, Jesus, the Messiah, to whom be all honor and glory and dominion now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe before the mystery of your gospel that even though the biggest sins and most despicable betrayals, you're working for our redemption. You work all things for your glory and for the good of those who love you. We trust you, Lord. Help us to grow in our trust so that we'll remain loyal to you and your mission. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.